no matter who you are, where you're from, what your politics are, what your religion is, what skin color you have, your ethnic makeup, we can all agree finding parking is the absolute worst. She. We almost got into it with a rat over a parking space. Hey fam, welcome to a new episode of Stay Watching Mondays at the Movies. Another Monday is here and it is time for a new episode. This week, uh, we're kind of jumping full force, you know, head first into two of the, the main themes of February, that being love. Uh, since this past Sunday, uh, at the time that I am that you may be listening to this was Valentine's Day. And we'll also be talking about some black history since February is Black History Month. The two films that I'm going to be talking about today are the final film in the To All the Boys I Loved Before trilogy, To All the Boys Always and Forever, and the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. These films couldn't be more different. Um, this is going to be kind of an interesting episode. Uh, so hang on. I will be right back. So this week, I'm going to start it out on a little bit of the lighter front, and I'm going to dive into To All the Boys, Always and Forever. Um, this is the last film in kind of this, this three film, To All the Boys I've Loved Before series, which follows um, this high school girl named uh, Lara Jean Cubby, um, who really is, is trying to find her place and find love. Um, and you know, the series kicks off with her, uh, basically getting a pretend boyfriend who becomes her real boyfriend. And so the series really is tracking the trajectory of their relationship. Um, Lara Jean and who is played by Lana Condor and, uh, Peter Kavinsky, who is played by Noah Centineo, um, really are this charming couple. You're, you're kind of rooting for them the entire time, even though they, in a lot of ways, feel like opposites in every possible way. Like they, they feel sometimes like they wouldn't be together. They also are kind of perfect on screen together. And so this series of films started in 2018. And, you know, I, I kind of jokingly called it an annual series when I was talking to someone about it before, even though technically there was a, you know, there was a full gap year between the first and second film, but you know, it, it, it's felt annual. I mean, the first one came out in 2018, the second one, 2020, and this third and final one in 2021. And so, you know, the series has really followed the trials and tribulations. The, the first film really looked at will they, won't they get together? The second film really focused on, you know, what if somebody else 
uh, came in the picture and was the right person for, for Lara Jean and, and it wasn't Peter. Um, and then the third film really asks, you know, how will their relationship survive as they prepare to go off to college? And, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's a really fitting premise for kind of this young love, this high school love. Um, because all too often when you're younger, you are, are trying to pin all of your hopes and dreams on the relationship that you might have. And really this this film is, you know, begging the question or, or forcing you to think about, you know, a, a little bit more than that, you know, to not put it all on that relationship, but to, you know, enjoy the times that you have while you have them together. Uh, and I think it does a, a really beautiful job of kind of sending that message. I think the cast is is really lovely. Obviously, Lana Condor and Noah Centineo have amazing chemistry together. They are both really great in their characters. The supporting cast is is quite good. Um, you know, I, I really love uh, Anna Kath Cart's character, Kitty. Uh, she's she's Lara Jean's sister in the film. I, I think she does a really good job. Uh, one of the characters that, that stands out to me, uh, John Corbett, he's got a very kind of understated role in these films. He's, he's the father of kind of three girls uh, and a widower. And so, you know, he's not necessarily the focus of all of these films, but he does play a pretty large role. And I, and I think he does a really good job of kind of anchoring a lot of what's going on here. Um, one thing that I that I did kind of find an issue with with this film, like despite, you know, really, again, finding it lovely, charming, cute, funny, um, you know, because the thing is, it's like you're releasing this movie Valentine's Day weekend, you know, you, you need something lighter, but cute, um, you know, and in some ways, I felt like the film struggled a bit to to really get the right pace. Like, I, I found myself wondering if the film could have been a tighter 90 as opposed to being almost two hours. Um, you know, it, it the, the movie is about an hour and I believe 45 minutes um, or sorry, an hour and 50 minutes. And I don't know if it necessarily needed all that time. There are some places where the pacing just goes from being really smooth to being really kind of glacial. And and there's a very distinct point in the film where you, you really start to feel it. And it, it, it's an understandable moment because it, it's really where, what I would say the core conflict of the film is kind of introduced and or not necessarily introduced, but starts to play out. And, you know, I, I understand why it went the way that it did, but it, it, it just felt like it, it caused the entire thing to just kind of slow to a crawl. Um, but I mean, I honestly, that, that would probably be my only real complaint about it. Um, you know, for these films, director Michael Fib, <laughs> I'm like, I'm so bad with names today, but Michael Fib, Fimo Gnari, Fimo Gnari. Um, I'm not 100% sure how it's pronounced, but um, 
he does a really good job uh, with this film. Uh, so he serves as both the director and the cinematographer for this movie. Um, one thing that's important to know about him, so outside of being the director and cinematographer for um, the these movies, uh, he also is the cinematographer for stuff like Dr. Sleep, The Haunting of Hill House. Um, he, he, it's it's kind of funny when when I think about that, where it's like this person who has a a very a very strong sense of the visual is directing these films because you know the the thing that I am weirdly impressed by with these films. Uh, so yes, obviously cute, love, great. They are really kind of beautiful looking, um, and and. You know, I, I, I feel like it's unfair to suggest that Netflix movies aren't necessarily going to be beautiful looking, um, but I, I think he does a really good job of, you know, really capturing the material that he is shooting uh, and presenting it in this way that is quite striking. Um, obviously, you know, the set designers, the, the production designers do a, a really good job of, of helping him out there and kind of making it all work. Um, I think they do a lovely job. The, the, the costuming, the, the fashion is all great. Um, you know, some of the set pieces are, are really well thought out. Um, you know, so so all in all, like it's it's a good job all around. Um, you know, I guess outside of the film itself, it's kind of interesting because I, I will be honest, I never I never thought I would kind of get into these films. Um, you know, I, I can admit that I do enjoy romantic comedies and things like that. But, uh, you know, a, a teen romance story was not something that I, I necessarily thought I would enjoy. Um, but there's there's certain aspects to these characters that I feel are really interesting and really endearing. And, you know, I think there's a certain universality to the challenges that these folks are facing in the relationships they have, not just in their romantic relationships, but in their family relationships. So, you know, there there's one aspect of the story that I that I don't feel gets enough attention. So this film, you know, and, and I will be, uh, you know, slight, slight spoilers. Um, but one of the things that that is happening in the beginning of this film is Lara Jean, her sisters and her father take a trip to South Korea. And, you know, part of it is, you know, for the for the girls, especially it's it's their kind of first time going to South Korea and kind of seeing where their mother is from. Um, you know, and, and I feel like that is uh, that was a really interesting touch uh, and a really interesting direction to go in because it allowed them to kind of speak to, you know, Laura Jean's uh, identity crisis in a sense, which, you know, I, I'm I'm guessing is something that was important to uh, the original author of the book series that that these are based off of, uh, you know, Jenny Han's book series. You know, so I imagine part of this is is self-referential in that way, um, you know, but there's there's a scene where where Lara Jean is talking to Peter and and basically says something to the effect that, you know, someone just came up to her and started speaking Korean. Um, 
you know, and it, it was something where, you know, sh this character is, is struggling with that identity and, and feeling, you know, in a sense, a loss of home. Uh, uh, and that is a theme that that does carry out throughout the film in a few different ways. And I thought it was, it was a really good way of kind of place setting at the very beginning of the film. Uh, and then on, on Peter's side, he has his own uh, sort of conflict outside of obviously the relationship hurdles that these characters are jumping through, uh, where his father, who, who had kind of left his mother uh, very early in his life uh, and essentially had been more or less absent, is now trying to be a part of Peter's life as he's preparing to go to college. And, you know, that that challenge of you know, how do you go about forgiving people and building new relationships out of relationships that maybe fell apart? Um, you know, how do you rebuild? How do you rekindle? Uh, which is which is another theme that kind of carries through with a few characters. It's it's essentially how do you say I'm sorry in in one sense, but also how do you accept an apology? And I, and I just feel like. You know, on the surface, I, I feel like there in some ways I would say that I, I wish they had kind of gone into more of those ideas, you know, more directly that that loss of home and that, you know, sorry slash acceptance you know, piece of it. But at the same time, with all the little bits that they do that feed into those themes, if you realize that those themes are there, um, I actually do think they kind of effectively um, weave those throughout the story and throughout various characters that that you're kind of encountering. Um, but yeah, I mean, other other than just some pacing issues, you know, I, I thought this was a lovely film. I, I really will miss this trilogy. I think the characters were, were incredibly endearing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's not every day where we get something that's cute, that's not annoying uh if that makes sense like you know there's a certain there's a certain way that these films have been approached that you know really makes them quite lovely and I, i'm glad that we've been able to experience them uh i i i do find myself wondering and worrying about how netflix might try to follow this up so whatever they do i i hope they take the right approach i hope it's something that uh, does have the same level of heart um you know and and something that that can be equally as endearing as this series was to so many people uh, and, and quite frankly, like, you know, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that, you know, we do have like a, a very, you know, cosmopolitan, very diverse cast in this film. So, you know, obviously the the three sisters, the, the Covey sisters are, are you know, are, are supposed to be, you know, biracial, um, you know, South Korean American, you know, children, you know, but you have you have so many different you know, people of so many different backgrounds with different types of families, different sexual orientations, all of that who are kind of represented here. So, you know, uh, yeah, not to say that everything has to be that way, but I would hope if, 
you know, someone is trying to create the next series like this, um, that they, they can kind of use this blueprint in a way that makes sense and that works uh, because you know I, I i'm gonna be real i would i would love to be able to each year really take in a, a nice lovely story about love um doesn't have to be a teen romance you know hey something with older people would be great something with people in their 30s who are still single and trying to find love um <laughs> would be very very helpful for for getting me through uh the, the the painful singleness that that is my my current life but yeah i mean i i found you know it, again it's not going to be a perfect movie not everybody's going to love it but i i really found to all the boys always and forever quite enjoyable and i hope if you've watched it you also found it enjoyable the next movie I'm going to talk about is a very stark departure from um, that cute, kind love arena. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is a heavy, heavy film. Uh, it is quite powerful. Um, basically, the easiest way to describe this film is it's based on true events, uh, though it is fictionalized. Uh, and, it, and it tells the story of William O'Neill, who is, uh, he's a treacherous rat, but he is an FBI informant who infiltrates the Chicago or the, the Illinois Black Panther Party. And you know, is, is tasked with getting close to Fred Hampton and helping, you know, assassinate him, essentially. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult film to watch because, you know, the thing that I would say first is really important to think about when looking at this film is, it, one, it's called Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, you know, Judas, in this case, is William O'Neill. He is the one who is, you know, stabbing you know, our, our black messiah, who in this case is Fred Hampton in the back. And, you know, it, it, it's it's a tough story because it's so relevant in, in so many different ways. And, you know, it, it's one of those films that if you if you have been paying attention and you are or have been angry and you've you know, you've been involved in the struggle, you've 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 been, you know, You've been upset by the fact that we are still fighting for civil rights in so many different ways and that, you know, we are still dealing with racism and, you know, all of these different things where we're, we're still under the thumb of capitalism and, you know, how that is destroying communities in its own way and how that's connected to political structures and power and everything like if you are frustrated by those things this film is one that will kind of re re-aggravate that frustration and you know obviously that that can be that can be tough like if you are not ready to engage in those topics if you're not ready to you know find yourself upset or you're tired of being upset. You know, this is a film that, that I can very easily see people not wanting to engage with, you know, not wanting to 
to watch, uh, even though I, I say it's something that I, I think everybody should watch. I, I think it is a piece of art that people should take in, you know, but at the same time, they shouldn't view it as the whole story in a sense, because, you know, we're, we're only getting an encapsulation of things. And and again, I think that's really important with anything that is based on a true story. Like it's based on that true story. There, there are still elements that are fictionalized. There's still elements that we may not know, or there are elements that might be changed to work within, you know, that that two hour time frame that that movie is being presented in. Um, but, you know, just just kind of backing up real quick. Um, this film is technically the big studio debut of director Shaka King. Uh, he had a smaller self, uh, a, a, a smaller film that he'd put out. But this is the big studio debut for him. Um, you know, he's worked on projects like uh, Random Acts of Flyness in the past. Uh, his, his first film was called Newlyweeds, uh, about a married couple who were addicted to um, marijuana. He's he's directed episodes of Shrill and, and High Maintenance and People of Earth. Um, so, you know, usually usually working on like smaller projects. So this was the first kind of big project for him. Uh, he was also one of the co-writers of the film. Um, in terms of our cast for this film, this is where it, it really stands out for me. So uh, we have Daniel Kaluuya, who you might know I mean, I would hope, you know, from Get Out, uh, he was also in, you know, he was in Black Mirror, he was in Black Panther, he was in Widows, where he has a very understated but tremendous performance in Widows, uh, which I'll come back to Widows in a little bit. Um, he plays Fred Hampton, who's the chairman of the Black Panther, the Illinois Black Panther Party. Um, and he is is tremendous in this role. Like, you know, I, I hate using words like like swagger, but he really does bring the swagger and intensity into this role, uh, and it and it really works so well. Um, you know, I, I know some people are going to have problems with the accent he uses, or they might find him hard to understand. Um, you know, and it, he's not doing a an impersonation of Fred Hampton, you know, Fred Hampton's uh, Fred Hampton speaks a little bit differently, but I think that Daniel Kaluuya does a, a really good job of kind of capturing him uh, in some of his cadence and, and the way that he kind of delivers messages and the way that he would kind of work himself up into uh, kind of his his rants uh, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, you know, or, or his speeches that, you know, he would, he would really kind of build up to these, you know, these ferocious kind of outbursts. And again, that's probably the wrong language to use, but like, you know, I think Daniel Kaluuya does a really good job of capturing this, this kind of real life individual, even if he's, you know, not 100% accurate to the way that the man talked or the way that the man looked, which is something, again, I will come back to that in a little bit. Um, Lakeith Stanfield plays uh, Bill or, or Wild Bill William O'Neill, um, who he's a rat. And Lakeith Stanfield does a very good job of, of playing this rat. Um, he's a character who, to some degree, 
you know, you may not necessarily, you may be of two minds with this character. You may have sympathy for them. You may not have sympathy for them. And either way you end up landing on that, I feel that that might be in part due to the way that Lakeith Sanfield brings this person to life. Um, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, from a casting perspective, Lakeith Stanfield does look very much like this man did in real life. Um, at least the older version of him. Again, that's something that I will come back to later. Um, I think he does a really good job of bringing his kind of freneticism, his, his kind of awkwardness his volatility to this role in a way that that makes him feel perfect you know that makes him feel dangerous because you know i, I think that's that's kind of what's important about this film so you know again you know to a degree part of the reason why there may be some sympathy for this character of bill o'neill is because you know, he is, in a sense, being cornered by the FBI to do this mission for them, um, you know, and he is being promised, you know, essentially he, he's being promised reward uh, for betraying his people. But, you know, part of it is he is this kind of apolitical actor in these things. So, you know, he doesn't necessarily, you know, believe in a cause. And because of that, he serves himself and he, he is really only out there for his own gain. Um, you know, really from, from a capitalist sense, you know, we are introduced to this man and he is trying to steal cars. And that's again, like, I, you know, that's something that we see right at the beginning of the movie. That's, that's how we're introduced to this character. He is, he is pretending to be someone he's not, and he is attempting to steal cars. And that's how the FBI catches him. And that's how they turn him. You know, we're going to, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to get this stuff off your record. If you just report back to us on this, we're going to give you some money. We're going to set you up right. All you have to do is get us this information, um, you know, and, and so like to me, you know, again, just like branching off from the actors for a second, you know, I think that's the really interesting thing away about the way that this film is built, but about how the story works in general, because, you know, what we're talking about is, all right, Fred Hampton, the Black Panthers, this communist idea, this community first idea and how the FBI is essentially using capitalism to undermine or recruit folks who would undermine who, who would undermine that that kind of idea that that economic idea that that social idea and you know I, I think that's it's it's the thing that makes it so kind of diabolical in a lot of ways you know and again like I'm, there's a part of me that's like that may not make sense to some of you who are listening to it I, I would definitely tell you to go read up on some of the economic principles if if you're not fully understanding that you know and really do a deep dive into the black panthers if you can uh, again that's something that i will come back to um but yeah it, it's really really challenging in that way um some other actors that that i do need to talk about jesse plemons he plays an fbi agent roy mitchell who's the one who turns bill o'neill um you know i think he does an incredibly 
good, good job. Um, you know, you might know Jesse Plemons as as Meth Damon, um, the guy who looks kind of like Matt, Matt Damon, um, who was on Breaking Bad. Uh, he was one of the guys who, who captures uh, Jesse Pinkman in that show. Um, you know, he he is really good in just about everything that he is in. Um, you know, so I would definitely say if you have a chance, uh, definitely, definitely check that out if you can. Um, the other actress that I think is like incredibly important to talk about in this film is Dominique Fishback. Um, she plays Deborah Johnson, uh, who would later be known as, uh, Akua Jerry, uh, who was uh, Fred Hampton's partner and, and gave birth to his son, Fred Hampton Jr. Uh, Dominique is a fantastic actress. Uh, you might have seen her in Netflix's Project Power recently. Uh, she was also in The Deuce. Uh, she's been in The Hate You Give. Um, uh, she was also in, you know, several episodes of Random Acts of Flyness. Uh, she is she is just an incredible, incredible actress. And, you know, part of it for me is just her naturalism. Uh, she just comes across so real. So, you know, the way that I would describe it, and, and this isn't a slight against, you know, Daniel or Lakeith or Jesse, um, but those guys feel like they're acting. Like you can tell they are acting. Dominique feels like a real person in the roles that she takes and the roles that she portrays. Like I never feel like I am watching somebody who is performing I feel like I am watching an actual person having these actual reactions to things. And, you know, it, it is one of the most understated and most beautiful performances in this film. And I think that is really, um, really important. Um, there are a lot of other great subtle performances from some of the other actors and actresses. Uh, one thing that I do want to kind of touch on real quick is just, uh, you know, Martin Sheen is in this film as J. Edgar Hoover, and, you know, he does quite a good job of, uh, you know, really drawing out how insecure, racist, xenophobic, uh, and vile J. Edgar Hoover was, um, you know, in, in some ways, the way that the character is, is, made up uh in in terms of makeup and everything like he he looks almost like a comic book villain which i which i know like could take away from it a bit for some people but you know i think it is the perfect portrayal for someone that's so vile so you know it, it's important to reference j edgar hoover here because that's part of where the name of this film is taken from so Basically, J. Edgar Hoover, who was in charge of the FBI, uh, essentially wanted to stop the rise of a black messiah or, or a, you know, a, a black leader that would unite uh, black people uh, because he, he feared the rise of black power in this country. And so, you know, really what we're getting in this film is a dissection and, and really pointing the finger at the history of a US government agency 
actively trying to tear down movements for black power. Something that, you know, I, I, I don't think we we quite talk about enough in the mainstream. So, you know, obviously within movement, we we talk about this. Obviously, when we are when we are having these conversations about the changes that need to be made to the system, um, that have been these these conversations have been occurring for years. We've we've had that talk, but I don't think people truly understand and are aware of you know how insidious this really was. You know because you know, these assassination attempts, you know, these murders of black leaders, this stuff wasn't accidental. This was sanctioned by the US government. This is this is why this film is, is kind of maddening in, in a lot of ways, because, you know, it, it forces you to really think about these issues. It forces you to, you know, confront the fact that, you know, all right, you know, why hasn't another, you know, MLK um, risen, you know, is that because of actions from people like this J. Edgar Hoover and other, you know, government officials who have actively sought to destroy black leadership before it really rises. And so I, I think that is, you know, that that's that's really a, a core a core piece of this film that that you need to look at and that you need to contend with and and i thought that you know one of the things that i said when i finished watching it was i i'm amazed that this film was made i, I was amazed that the film was greenlit um you know because you know obviously they have they have a great cast it was it was written fantastically they you know you're you're producing this film in a big studio with big name actors and you know your director this is really his first big studio directorial debut it's a film about the black panther party um to a degree um and it's a film pointing the finger at how the u.s government was complicit in destroying movements for the people you know it's it's just wild to me and in a lot of ways that this film could get made in the context of kind of where we're at as a nation. So, you know, this film was originally supposed to come out, I believe, August 2020. And so, you know, that's the summer that we are reacting to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and all of these different things that we're reacting to that summer. And I'm, I was I was telling my mom uh, and, and my family this earlier when I was talking about it, like, I don't know if we could have really handled this film coming out then um you know what what's what's even more striking to me is watching this film you know uh, essentially a, a month and a few days after the capital insurrection and the way seeing the way that those people that took part in this action against the u.s government and and a peaceful transition of power how they were treated with kid gloves, you know, where these people, you know, sure, some of the rhetoric is not perfect in the Black Panthers. I think Fred Hampton Jr. put it really well um, in in talking about, um, you know, the making of this film and, and kind of exploring the fact that, you know, hey, 
you you can't talk about the Black Panthers without talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there is some ugly in there, you know, that is a reality. But there's ugly in some of these other movements and the reaction isn't always proportional and it's definitely not equal. Um, And so, you know, that's something that was really kind of jarring about watching this film and thinking about the way that we are kind of constantly handled, uh, threatened or or kind of broken down um, out of fear and how other groups who might take similar types of actions don't necessarily have those same kind of blocks put on them. Um, So, you know, other than that, um, you know, obviously you can, you can tell that this is a movie that, that had me thinking and had me in my thoughts. Um, I have a lot to say about it. Um, but some of the other things that I do want to talk about real quick, um, you know, the cinematography of this film is quite good. Um, the cinematographer for it is Sean Bobbitt, uh, who, you know, again, cinematographers aren't always the people that you immediately know, uh, but Sean Bobbitt is somebody that you should know. He was the cinematographer for The Place Beyond the Pines, 12 Years a Slave, Hunger, Shame, uh, The Rhythm Section, Widows, again, the you know, another film uh, that starred uh, or another film that featured Daniel Kaluuya. Um, You know, he was the cinematographer for Spike Lee's Old Boy. Um, So, you know, really, really great cinematographer that was brought on to kind of help frame this film. And, you know, some of the films, some of the camera motion is just fantastic. There's this opening oneer um, that is just exquisite in this film. The angles that certain things are shot from are, are are literally brilliant. I like, despite how difficult this film can watch from a story and material and emotional perspective, the beauty in the way that it is filmed and shown is immense. Um, you know, the, the music team for the film uh, did a great job. Craig Harris, Mark Isham uh, did a really great job. Uh, the art direction by Jeremy Woolsey, set decoration by, by Rebecca Brown, costume design by, by Charlize Antoinette Jones, like all fantastic makeup team did great. Um, you know, everything looks so good. And, you know, again, knowing that, uh, Akua and Jerry and, and Fred Hampton Jr. were a part of the process of, you know, essentially giving the thumbs up and the thumbs down for a lot of this film. Obviously, there's stuff that I imagine they wanted changed, but they probably couldn't. But the fact that they were they were there to help with so many aspects of the film, um, Akua from the standpoint of, of the way that the Black Panthers were run, the way people spoke to each other, the way that they would have acted, who would have smoked a cigarette, who wouldn't have all of that um it's it's just it was just so masterfully done um you know the 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 few places where you know i i I might draw critique um so obviously you know first and foremost like this is 
a story that focuses on William O'Neill. Um, this is not a Fred Hampton biopic, uh, which I know might rub some people the wrong way. Like, why are we essentially, why are we following this traitor? Um, you know, but, I, but I think for the purposes of the story that they were trying to tell, um, I think it I think it works well, uh, but I can understand it being a frustration that people might feel, uh, especially since there is so little education on the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton and and what these people actually stood for and, and what they were trying to do. Um, I believe there's there's some stat out there where it's like 70% of information that is available on the Black Panthers was authored by the FBI. Um, so, you know, that is non-objective information um, and, you know, realistically paints the group in, in such a bad light uh, that it, it, it's impossible to know kind of the reality just from information that you might be finding online. And so, you know, there is there is a challenge with this film if this is your kind of introduction to the Black Panthers, to Fred Hampton, you know, where can you truly go to find out, you know, more and correct information? You know, obviously um, the Black Panther Cubs and 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 things like that, there, there are existing ways to to get that information members of the black panthers are still alive because you know the other point that i would you know bring up as a, a point of critique is you know the age of these people so you know, at the time of his death, Fred Hampton was 21. Uh, at the time he was recruited by the FBI, William O'Neill was 17. And so Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield definitely do not feel that young. Um, you know, they are youthful guys, but they're not that youthful. Um, and I can definitely see that being an issue with some people because, you know, there is a certain standpoint where you lose track of, of how young these people who were involved with this specific movement truly were. Um, that's something that stood out to me when members of the Black Panthers, uh, former members of Black Panthers and the Young Lords uh, came to do a talk at the university that I work at. And, you know, it, it was striking to me because it's like, you know, uh, you expect, you know, these, these very old, very, very old people to, to come in. And it's just like, oh no, these people are like, you know, maybe my, my, my uncle's age, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not nearly, they're not my grandparents age. They're, they're, they're younger than that. And, you know, that was something that was really striking to me meeting actual former members of the black Panthers. And then realizing that, oh, these were, you know, 16, 17 year old kids up to 20, 21, you know, year old kids. Um, and that's something that, that that I felt truly kind of got lost during this film. Like you never get a sense that these people are that young, um, which in some ways does a disservice to the history of it all. Um, you know, and again, like I, it's not to say that the film is bad because of this, but uh, the learning that the film can help provide is deficient because you lose out on some of that important context because, you know, in favor of getting actors who will be able to pull off these roles in this specific way, 
they they went with you know the bigger names or, or the more popular people um you know again i think the casting was perfect to a degree but the age aspect of it is really an important kind of omission in a sense um you know and and i would say that that's kind of those are kind of the the two biggest things it's like the the lack of understanding of the politics that we really get from this um you know so sure you know the story may not be expressly focused on fred and the black panther party and everything that they stood for it does do a good job of looking at the community angle and looking at how fred hampton was trying to bring together these different people that are suffering from a lot of the same inequities brought on by the way that the government approached things and you know the way that capitalism works and and works against communities i think a lot of that is clear but i don't know if watching this film you would get a full understanding of that and you know again you just don't get a sense of how young these people who are a part of this movement truly were um you know and i think those are those are two shortcomings of the film that don't destroy it in my eyes you know they they definitely don't you know diminish the film in this way that i would tell people not to watch it um but they do for me you know act as signals that make me want to tell people, hey, read up more on this stuff. Hey, look into more information about what was going on here and who was involved and how old they were. And that goes for that goes for all of the movements that were that we look at in terms of the civil rights movement or, you know, all of the the actors in the civil rights movement. Like, obviously, Fred Hampton is quite a bit younger than some of the people that we we think about. But, you know, realistically, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were both assassinated when they were 39. You know, and, and I look at it as as somebody who's turning 34 this year, you know, those two men, you know, who to this day have left such a, a an immense legacy in terms of mobilizing people and, and moving people, they they both were assassinated at an age that I'll be in like five years, you know, and that's, that's wild to me. You know, that that's, it's, it's wild thinking that, you know, again, Fred Hampton at 21 years old, you know, he's the age of students that I work with currently, you know, that's, that's what's, what's truly kind of horrifying about the whole situation. And again, that's, that's part of what, gets lost throughout all of this you know and I, and I know for for some people you know this film won't be radical or revolutionary enough you know which is which is always going to be a challenge because you know when you have a big studio producing a film you know focused on groups like the black panthers on on revolutionaries like fred hampton you know, they have to toe a specific line where they have to make a film that's going to be entertaining enough for general audiences, yet still draw in that core audience that they, they might be looking for who would be deeply interested in the subject matter. And so what happens is you, you, you do end up kind of sanding off some of the sharpest edges of this all and 
you know, again, that that might be that might be a shortcoming. That might be something that that is, you know, worth talking about when it comes to truly dissecting this film and looking at it. And, you know, I, I, I again, I, I won't allow myself to say that it is not a worthwhile film because of that. But what I will say is, you know, to a certain degree, you know, your enjoyment of this film may be partially dependent on how much of a revolutionary you are or how radical you are in your beliefs and your way of of looking at things, um, you know, because, again, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, capitalism and, and communism. We're talking about white supremacy. We're, we're talking about um, black self-realization, all of these different topics. And, you know, your stance on any one of those things, if you feel that this movie does not take a strong enough approach to one of those things it may completely turn you off and and i think that is you know again that's that's ultimately always going to be a challenge when these films are made by bigger studios um you know and that was something that i worried about initially after watching this film um un until you know, not not until because because I, I still have that worry a bit after reading it. But, you know, I, I found a, an article from the L.A. Times uh, uh, titled Judas and the Black Messiah delivers justice for Fred Hampton. Thank those he left behind, uh, which, you know, again, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier in this recording. But, um, you know, the L.A. Times speaks with Fred Hampton Jr., the son of, of Fred Hampton uh, and a cure. And Jerry, who was his partner, who was, who was Fred Hampton's partner, um, Fred Hampton Sr.'s partner. Um, and, you know, really, it, it speaks to their role in, in helping develop this film and, and, you know, the process of them giving the producers, you know, in, in, you know, the, the green light to make this film and to make it happen. And so, you know, again, I, I, I just think it's, one, it was it was good for me to read that because I had started to worry that, you know, maybe they weren't as involved as I would hope they were in the creation of this film. But, you know, it, it sounds like they, they were. And, you know, with all of these things, you know, it was very clear in the article that, that they said they had to fight for things. They had to fight for things to be included. There are some things that they fought that I don't think they wanted to be in the film, but ended up in the film. Um, you know, and that's ultimately the challenge. But at the end of the day, they gave their stamp of approval to the film. So, you know, there is a degree to which I feel like they, they must have been adequately satisfied with what was being portrayed here um you know and and, and akua she was very complimentary of, of daniel kalua's performance as uh fred hampton she was very complimentary of, of dominique fishback who was playing her um you know and so uh, and she was even complimentary of, of lakeith stanfield you know there was there was a great there was a great quote where she was talking about the fact that she thought he had done such a tremendous job in the role, but she could not hug him. And I, and I thought that was like really, that was really powerful because it's like you, when you are bringing this person who portrayed people who are still alive today 
to life and you do such a good job that they respect your talents. Uh, but because of the character you are playing, they, they can't embrace you. That, like that says something really powerful to me. And, you know, I, I think I, I would definitely say that this article is, is worth hunting down. Um, if you have a chance to, to read it, it, it does make an incredibly good companion piece to the film. Uh, it answered a lot of questions that I had about the production and, and kind of the involvement of the family. And yeah, I just, you know, you know, I, I definitely think it, it's worth doing that read, you know, so uh, I would say in, in the case of especially of films that are based on real life things on on true historical events. You know, always make sure you're doing research after you watch them. You know, it's it's one thing for a film to be great and have great performances and and, you know, have fantastic cinematography and direction and writing and, you know, a fantastic score. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to have all of those. It's another thing to, you know, drive people to want to learn more. And, you know, I'm hoping that this film drives people to want to learn more and that they can actually find the the adequate resources to do so. But yeah, I mean, I, I know I've been I've been talking a lot, um, you know, short version of it is I, I think this is a, a fantastic film. It's incredibly timely. It's incredibly poignant. I think that if you haven't watched it, you should watch it. Um, if you don't like this film, you, you should verbalize what it is that you don't like about it. And, you know, I think I think it leaves room for for very real, very nuanced conversations about how we interact with media that is based on kind of these, you know, these these very tense issues, these, you know, uh, these these challenging topics that, you know, are are really not difficult, but nearly impossible to to adequately speak to in film. Um, you know, I, 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 I think this film is such a great conversation starter, and I, I really hope that I get to talk to more people about it. So those were my thoughts on to all the boys always and forever and Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, obviously, I had a lot of thoughts on Judas and the Black Messiah, a lot more than uh, to all the boys. I, I hope you were able to pick something interesting out of what I had to say about both films. If you agree, if you disagree, if there's some other comment that you want to make, make sure to hit me up on social media. Stay watching pod or at stay watching pod on Twitter at Larry Tron on Twitter, or shoot me an email, stay watching pod at gmail.com. You know, I really want to hear what other people have to say about these films. It's no fun. If I'm just talking to myself, I want to have a conversation after I do these podcast episodes. So definitely send me your thoughts, agree, disagree. Is there something that you wanted to see more of in either of these films? Is there some way that you would have changed these films to make them better? I want to hear from you. Don't be afraid to hit me up. 
I do have another, you know, regular episode of the podcast that will be coming out later in this week. Uh, look for that in your feed, probably Thursday morning, uh, if not Wednesday morning. Um, that episode, I will be talking about uh, one of my favorite topics right now, which is the idea of just shutting up and enjoying the ride. And, you know, if you are watching stuff like WandaVision right now, you might have an understanding of where I'm coming from. Uh, but look for that episode this week. In the meantime, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast, drop a rating or review, rating and review. Both of those are appreciated. If you like this show, please, 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 please share it with other people. I would love to get new listeners and hear from new people who want to talk about film and entertainment and all the different topics that I speak about. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, until you hear from me again, stay watching, fam. Peace.